Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, I'm Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to this MedHeads episode on the New Year and how not to do New Year's resolutions. And of course, we've got with us our dear friend, Marie. How are you, Marie? Hello, how are you? I'm awesome. I'm well. So I just love New Year's resolutions. They, they <laughs> allow me to express the failures in my life and what I'm going to do in the new year, the hope of the new year that resonates full of achievement or at least the possibility of achievement and becoming that perfect individual that I've always aspired to be. And that mm. happens to me every year. New Year's resolutions mm. are easy to make but they are very difficult to keep up with, aren't they? What do you think about them? Oh, well, considering the, um, the research suggests that something like 64% of New Year's resolutions have gone belly up within the first four weeks of their supposed yeah. implementation, um, yeah. it's not very, well, that's almost like two thirds of um, things not going great within four weeks. So I can give you an example of a New Year's resolution that doesn't follow that um, pattern. Oh. Applications, applications for divorce peak at the end of January. <laughs> so people decide they've had enough. <laughs> they get rid of their partners. That's the one resolution that they do keep. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Applications for divorce peak in the end of January, early February. Because I just at the the con the um the the as the belief about having somebody survive another twelve months with their spouse is too gruesome yeah. to bear. And, and I also think that February the 14th, Valentine's Day, is also a particular additional trigger to, to that process of, you know, I just, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are all happy and, you know, giving each other cards. And I can't I stay another stand. day in this loveless yeah. relationship. All I want to do I is stand that. your spouse well, in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's assume that we're not looking to divorce our spouse. So, I mean, the new year is, a, is an opportunity to recap on the old and make some kind of planning for the new year, the, the future. You know, mm -hmm. it, it is a useful opportunity to, to uh, you know, take stock of the situation and ask yourself where you're going. Yes. But is, it, is, is there such a thing as a valuable New Year's resolution? I think the difficult thing with New Year's resolutions is they're often made on a whim and they're usually yeah. made when someone's actually intoxicated or <laughs> otherwise <laughs> substance affected. Yeah. Uh, that's usually been my experience. I don't know whether that's, well, I mean, you'd see it in the in the area of addictions, but that's certainly what I've, what I've certainly seen. And it's these kind of, you know, attaching to kind of these vague statements. And, you know, when we think about things like smart goals, you know, when we're often making a bold statement such... I'm just going to make, you know, 2021 my year. I'm going to make, I'm going to be happy. Huh. Right. Or now, I'm just going let me to... stop you there. Let me stop you there. You've <laughs> used the word smart goal. Now, explain yep. to us what a smart goal is. Okay. So the, it comes from the abbreviations of like that. If the goal we're working towards is going to be smart, it's specific, it's measurable, it's achievable, it's realistic, and it's timely. Yes. And so when we're looking at the, the, that's the acronym for SMART, but what often happens is, you know, people will make a New Year's resolution and it's on a whim. And the yes. other thing, I don't know whether you've heard it with your patients, is it often comes from the should. 
the the should statements you know it's a should statement rather than a value statement and well explain what I, a should statement is and what a value statement is uh, you can't just use these okay. terms without explaining them okay so the sh- the shoulds get the um get get traction only because it's coming from that almost controlling aspect of self like i don't know about this but if i hear that if i say to myself oh look i really should go and throw the load of washing on i don't know about you but for me it's very half bottomed it's like no begrudgingly done it's like Mm. i'm doing this because i have to or because i should which is scripted whereas if Mm. i turn around and, and look at my values um I don't believe personally that the shoulds actually get the momentum. They might momentarily, you know, give you a little bit of impetus for something, but I've seen it more often than not happen where, oh, well, it's not, this isn't doing it for me now. It's not actually kind of really, it's right. not compelling enough. So tell Whereas me about values, the values. Values are a very, very different. Values are your why. Values are the things that will get you out of the bed, um, even on days that you particularly may not want to. The best statement I ever heard from someone was, uh, when you're interested, you'll do what's convenient. But when you are inspired and when you are motivated, you will do whatever it takes. And I don't know about you, but I can Mm. feel a certain energy in those two, in the the comparison between those two statements. You know, you're just a bit ho-hum, ho-hum. It's just a bit of something you're kind of interested in. But when it like runs through the veins in your body, like the the momentum is huge, and that's what will pull yeah. you through on the days when you really don't feel like doing something. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, I mean, you've just touched on your using of the word values, your using of the word momentum. That triggers in me motivation, and dare I say it, motivational interviewing. Yes. Yes. What's motivational interviewing? So motivational interviewing is where we're talking to a person about um, and how we actually elicit their why. So motivational interviewing is where we, we talk to somebody about, you know, especially if we're talking about substance abuse, we might be looking at, you know, well, okay, well, let's let's have a, let's be, you know, realistic about this. There must be some aspects to what you're doing that's giving you something, otherwise you wouldn't be doing what it's doing. Um, but let's also look at the other. And we don't get into battle whenever we're doing motivational interview and somebody goes, like I'll never forget when I did training and someone was talking about, oh, but my feet don't get, a, like her back was out. She was needing to see a physiotherapist or something, but she was going, no, but my back never goes out when I wear my high heel shoes. And like we're talking about like massive big heels. Instead of getting into battle about let's have an argument over the shoes and, and the, the size of the heel, Let's just let's just let her say that, and then let's let, let's just move on to something else rather than getting into the battle, because the battle often only creates more of the well. This is why I'm determined to keep wearing my shoes. Or for a right. person who's using substances, um, I'm just going to keep drinking more because that's what I want to do. And we we actually, yeah, without awareness, bring out the re, the re, the rebel again and make yeah. the rebel be the one that's doing this, that doing all the speaking. Whereas motivational interviewing doesn't do that. So, I mean, I think you've alluded to this very well, that that motivational interviewing allows the therapist to go in a dance, a cooperative dance with the patient. So it's different from other types of counseling where Mm. you're basically telling the patient what to do. In this relationship, you're dancing with the patient. And one of the things that, that I use, which is part of motivational interviewing, is the creation of ambivalence. Mm. So there are things that there are questions that I would ask. Well, okay. So you want to keep using drugs. You want to you want to keep eating chocolate. You don't want to lose weight. You don't want to go to the gym. You don't want to go on a diet. 
how important is it for you to, to do all of these things on a scale of one to 10? And mm. if they say a five, we'll say, well, why isn't it a two or why isn't it an eight? And then yes. the second question I will sometimes ask is, so what I'm hearing from you is that you don't want to make these changes. Yeah. Can you think of any harms that you're experiencing as a result of not doing these changes? Is, anything that, is there a downside to what you want to continue to do? So yes. I'm not telling them, oh, you're a naughty boy, if you continue to drink, you'll become cirrhotic, or you're a naughty girl, if you continue to eat chocolate, you'll become you know, fat, or you'll get health problems, or you, you'll exacerbate your mm. diabetes. I'm not saying that. I'm asking no. the patient to verbalize his or her own belief system around the potential harms of that continued behavior. So I'm not judging them, I'm not judging them. Yeah. No, no. And they've yeah. actually got to hear themselves. And that's actually how it, they, the threads kind yeah. of get offered that people can grab yeah. onto. And the beautiful yeah. thing is that you haven't agitated them out of the room yes. or, or, or actually invoked their defences to yes. only make them reinforce why they're doing what they're yeah. doing. So it is, it, it never feels, it all comes, when we do motivational interviewing well, it's all coming from them. They're actually bringing mm. up all of the pros, the cons, the, yeah. the ambivalence, the incongruency, um, and all of that. So it's actually really, really good. <laughs> yeah. And there's another issue about dealing with sustained talk. <clears throat> so mm. there's two types of conversations that you can have with a patient when you're doing a motivational interviewing. One is that this sustained talk where I'm fixated in my status quo. Mm. I don't want to stop using drugs. I don't want to stop drinking. I don't want to stop uh, eating health badly. That's all mm. sustained talk. And then there's change talk, which is, I realize that I need to stop doing X, Y, and yes. Z because it's harmful for me, or, and or the benefits of stopping are so great. That's change talk. Mm. And it, a big lesson for me was actually realizing that when I heard sustained talk from a patient, I had to swallow my urge to interrupt them and get them to do change talk. Whereas yes. now I've learned, well, actually, if I hear sustained talk, all I do is reflect it back to them. All oh, right, so there's no way that you, there are, there are no health issues for you, or it's great where you are because you're keeping to take these drugs. I, I reflect back the sustained talk, and then they themselves start to generate the change talk with which I can work from. So they generate the, the change talk. And that means that I, as the therapist, am not telling them, well, actually, you need to be thinking in a different way. All I'm doing is reflecting back to them what they've already said. And eventually, out grows that little green shoot, that glimmer of hope that is the beginning of change talk. Yes. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but um, my, one of my clinical supervisors said to me, do ne never, ever work harder than your clients. Yes. And I think you touched on something absolutely beautiful, and that is that um, you, when you just let them sit with their own awarenesses mm -hmm. and, and realise that, you know, like one of the things that's often taught me so much about the work that I love is that I have incredible respect for people's defences. Mm -hmm. And once I realise that if I don't go into battle with their defences, they will um, the, the aspects of this will emerge, and exactly like what you just did. Yes. You don't have to, you know, you, you once you overcome that intense feeling to say, oh, but, blah, 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 this is what the research tells us mm -hmm. um, about what you're actually doing to your body, the more that we can just sit there and just roll, like, like talk about this roll with the resistance, just feed yeah. it back. And then when the ball lands back in their court, they have to do something with that information. 
But the beautiful yeah. aspect of that is they're actually um, there's there's an empowerment process throughout that whole journey, and I think mm. you you bring up that you know change is not something you just do on a whim. Like change requires planning, it requires commitment, it requires sacrifice in a lot of instances. And there's a lot of aspects to change that happen more than just a one simple statement on New Year's as they're, you know, um, putting up yes. their wine to the, to the to the moon, going, hey, you know, there's a big, there's a lot that goes yes. on. I'm going to be perfect next year. <laughs> hey. And we also need to realise that, um, you know, when we're considering uh, any sort of change or whatever that might be or a goal that we're working to, we need to be really considerate of the ripple effect that whatever we're choosing to do, and also the sustainability of the change, um, because well, I think a lot of people make decisions. Yeah, they don't don't take into consideration me, environment. You're telling me all these key words. Yeah, and there's a cycle that has yes. all these key words in it. And let me share that with you. So we we know that there is a cycle of change. And that cycle of change starts from the pre-contemplation to the contempla contemplation to the preparation, the action, and the maintenance phase. And so yes. all of these key words that you're telling me fit into that cycle of change. So, so can you explain that cycle? And first of all, explain what is pre-contemplation? And then we'll go through the rest so, of the stages. Yeah. So pre-contemplation, you... I don't see people who are pre-contemplators generally in my in the work that I do because as far as they're concerned, nothing's even got into their into their psyche that there's something not working. Um, Pre-contemplators you may actually see who have arrived into an emergency department with a broken leg because they were substance affected and got on a skateboard. Mm. You, that they, you know, you might be able to. They're not. They're not going there because they want to actually give up substances. They're going there because they've broken their leg. But generally, yeah. pre-contemplators, you won't see them in engaging in any sort of therapy yeah. because they it really hasn't got into their conscious awareness that there's something not right. Yeah. So we know that pre-contemplation is defined as not considering a change for the next six months. Yes. But you can work with pre-contemplators. Mm. Motivational interviewing is great for working with pre-contemplators because all you have to do in that stage with MI is, as I said before, is just create them their own ambivalence. Yes. You know, maybe maybe what you're doing is causing you harms as well as being fun, or maybe there's another way. Yes, and I guess you, in a, as a G, in a GP capacity, you would probably have that. Um, and I, I mean, maybe in some ways, yeah, I do get the pre-contemplators, they come to me about this issue, but then we realise that this issue is actually, actually in the mix. Yes, and yes, yes. right, you, you, you can actually get it, but that's not their primary reason for seeking that's help. not their primary. So the ticket, the ticket of, of admission to whatever clinical care they're getting is yeah. not actually the real issue. So the broken no. leg is not the real I, issue. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. But you, yeah. but you are right. You can use motivational interviewing yeah. for the pre-contemplator, absolutely. And then we move to contemplation, and that's sort of more of the, the toggle of the seesaw, you know. Mm. Uh, it's that, oh, I don't know, what would my life look like if I didn't have X, Y, or Z in it? Um, mm. And then there can be this kind of tipping of the seesaw backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And that's, that's some people can stay in that, you know, in yeah. that space for quite a while. Yeah, so they're thinking about then, it. But they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're still not convinced of the overall benefit. But again, the, the ambivalence is increasing. 
They're yes. thinking about the benefits of change versus the benefits of the status quo. And there's an internal battle. And so, again, for me, motivational interviewing is absolutely crucial in that phase because yes. it's an opportunity for me to increase their ambivalence, increase the amount of change talk. And change talk is a very powerful tool to get people to actually yes. go on to the next stage. So in the first two stages, pre-contemplation and contemplation, for me, motivational interviewing is absolutely key at getting people through mm. onto the next stage. Yes, which is the preparation stage. So it's yes. that, what do I need to do to, you know, to actually uh, induce some level of change? Yes. Um, that could be anything from, you know, maybe I'll find out what's around, what, what do I need to do, what's, yes. what pharmacotherapies might be on offer, do I need yeah. to go to a, you know, a group, um, do I just plan on, you know, instead of doing whatever I do every day of the, of the week, can I just do it on the weekend? Now, for me, the preparation phase is, is actually, oh, sorry, not for me, but I think that advertisers prey on people in the preparation phase, especially in the new year. That's the time to go out and buy all the gym clothes, buy the new sneakers, get the expensive gym membership, get the, uh, the lifestyle product, get the uh, healthy salad delivered to the house deal. You know, all of that, all of those, all of those advertisements, you know, offering change, offering success, prey on yes. people who are in that contemplative, sorry, in that preparation phase, who get a buzz on preparing yeah. for the actual change. Now, yes. to, to go through, I mean, this cycle of change suggests that to actually get to action, you've got to go through preparation. Now, that's not strictly true, but a lot of people I see get stuck in the preparation phase. They buy the gym equipment. Yeah. They buy the gym yes. membership. They get the homes, they get the delivery of the salad. Yes. <laughs> They get the, the, the $10 lettuce leaf delivered to the front door. <laughs> <laughs> but they get stuck there. Yes. <laughs> you know, and by the time February comes, they haven't actually gone to the gym or worn the shoes or used the shoes. And no, and the lettuce has gone out to the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I, I tend to use uh, a different kind of... I don't... I, I suppose motivational interviewing can help with there, but I... I tend to start going into kind of CBT methodologies that when I, when I see people stuck in the preparation phase, you know, thinking about the antecedents, the behaviors, and the consequences. What's your view on this uh, on this aspect of change? Yeah, very much so. And this is where I think the when I do a lot of the work, it's it's looking at those unconscious blockers that get on get in the way, those those things yeah. that sort of sabotage. Because you're right, when we're talking about the the contemplation stage, it's it's where the um, it's where the incongruency becomes too unbearable that it, yes. it tips into the, the stage where I, you know, a person can't live like this. You know, I was only talking to someone the other day and they were saying that, you know, they drank really significantly for probably 15 years and then one day just after one too many blackouts, they just said, okay, my body's obviously telling me I can't cope with this anymore. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, I don't know that she had to go through her own process, but I don't know how much of her own process she was actually going through in the in the back of her own mind anyway. 
Yeah. Um, but she just decided that 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 was it. That you know that yeah. the, the the way that she was living was just no longer going to be sustainable for her. So her why was obviously that you know um, it was it was now becoming not so much fun, and that cycle had actually ended for her and her aspect of what she was doing. Yeah. So we we kind of think about preparation phases as a kind of a, a month. You know, it can take about a month to you know. Mm. prepare to actually make this change and then of course we go to the action stage yes that's when you first get on the treadmill that's when you first open the door to the gym that's when you walk past the bottle shop without actually going in mm. yeah that can be that can be very challenging and, a lot of, and people do need support in the action phase because it's, it's hard. It's, you're trying to, it takes, you know, if you listen to these motivational speakers like Tony Robbins, you know, it takes 28 days mm. or 30 days or mm. 90 days to change your yeah. life, you know. But when you're in the middle of day 15, so if you're on January the 15th and you're still eating your lettuce leaf and you're going to the gym, it, it's exhausting. So mm. What kind of things do you offer for, for people in that stage of change? So I usually, I've always found myself that if some people have got an image of somebody that they particularly aspire to or they're motivated by, um, I think some of those prompts, the other thing I cannot emphasise enough is environment. Um, you know, environment is such a significant part for change. Um, it's, yeah, it's just absolutely crucial. Mm. The other thing it's important to remember is, you know, um, to be clear with, like, with the people I work with, I'm always asking, you know, be clear about what you want why you want it and for whom whom else is either going to be if to make sure that you're not doing it for somebody else i don't know whether yes. you've noticed this but i found Definitely. that things are very short-lived if they're if they're doing it because it, it people might be able to go look I'll, I'll mow the lawn for my loved one because you know that'll just shut her up and she'll be happy right that's that's not a huge sacrifice really but if somebody then says look i'm going to commit myself to a four-year law degree when I'm really not passionate about law and I'd rather be out there sitting there, you know, working in the RSPCA, yeah. something's going to give, something is going to give. So that, that stuff yeah. around when we're talking about like the action stage and, you know, people are having, you know, heightened anxiety every time they walk past the bottle shop or, you know, all of a sudden their, you know, their palate's going off, for goodness sake, I want something more than that scungy lettuce leaf. Um, yeah. where, you know, we're really thinking about, you know, how do we keep the, how do we keep the flames ignited? You know, what else can yes. we add? You know, and, and I think reward really is really said. Yeah, I think yeah. reward is really important. Like people need to, instead of just going, oh, great, I'm going to get this reward at six months because blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? The brain's going to go, hey, uh, where's the novelty in it for me to sit through this for the next six months? What, what else? You know, we need to give little incremental rewards along that journey. Otherwise, we lose momentum, we run out of steam, and we just give up and abandon the whole idea. Yeah. So what you've said really, really chimes with me that, that meaningful change can only occur when that change is relevant to you. You yes. cannot change for somebody else. You just can't. Eventually no. the cracks will appear in this facade of commitment. And the second thing, as you said, is rewards. Now, we also need to think within the cycle of change, once you've done a, a month of action, then you start going into this, this phase, which is the maintenance phase. And people say that if you've done maintenance for six months, you're probably there. But that, that can be hard as well. Other people suggest that it, you're, you're stuck in a maintenance phase for five years 
until the risk of relapse occurs, or, or sorry, disappears. Mm. So at any stage during the cycle of change, you can always revert. And Very when, when so. you're in the action and, main, and maintenance phase, you can relapse into the previous behavior. So mm. having, to, having a way of dealing with relapse in whatever change you're trying to make is a really important part of the whole cycle. Yes. So how do you deal with the uh, with patients who have relapsed? So the, the tragic thing is so many people, um, I think, run out and don't come back. They think that, oh, I've put all this, this you know, the counsellor or the AOD specialist has put all this energy into me and I've disappointed them. So they end up with a double whammy. They're potentially, you know, potentially lost their partners who have gone, oh, you've done it again, you know, this is, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. And they can essentially feel very abandoned and they actually then almost abandon that part of themselves that's that's lost sight of that they've done so well for so many months. Mm. And that's where I think the, that we've got to be really aware of the cognitive stuff and also mm. actually bring this in as part of the discussion much earlier, even though like in the maintenance space, I don't know about you, but I've seen my clients get all uncomfortable and they're like, uh, but if you start talking about it, it's like you think I'm going to do it, and it's like no, we need to we need to make sure this is what's going to happen for so many people. It's not that we're wanting to uh, put it out there that they're going to stumble, but the reality is we need to call it for what it is. It's highly likely people will have a have a wobble. The wobble yeah. doesn't have to be the complete fall. Um, yeah. If people are aware that this is what they will need to negotiate as part of relapse prevention is to realise that there's going to be some risky situations and that there is humanness in that and to make sure that they don't run off thinking that they're going to disappoint the counsellor or disappoint the therapist or whatever that is. Yeah. That's, that's the quicker they can get back in, the better. <laughs> yeah. So the, this idea of the fracturing of the relationship between the patient and yeah. the therapist needs to be addressed. There's no such thing as a fractured relationship uh, around relapse. Relapse... What, uh, you know, we don't wish people relapse, but we know it happens. And uh, you might Correct. be the lucky one that never has a relapse, but we know it happens. You know, change is associated with relapse. You don't get it the first time sometimes. You might, you know, I've heard people say that you need to go through this cycle of change maybe seven times before you end up, you know, mm. in, in long-term maintenance. Yeah. So yeah. that's point number one. Yeah, so just because you've had a wobble doesn't mean it has to be a, a tumultuous descent into the into complete and utter uh, original behavior, mm. you can get back. And the other thing I can say, oh yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I was just going to say is, um, I say to clients, you can't have had a setback if you'd never moved forward. It's impossible. Yeah. Yes. So, I use when I see someone with uh, who's going through a relapse. You're absolutely right. We need to talk about it before it happens. But then when it does happen. Mm. I use the questions how, what, why, where, and when. And the whole idea is to have a really good discussion of the antecedents to that relapse and then look at what happened and then look at what might change the next time you come across those antecedents because life is full of triggers. You can't avoid so. triggers, but what you can do is learn to control your response to triggers. Mm. Yeah. Yes. How do you deal with and, that? And and work your environment as well. I, and I think you're absolutely right. Instead of it, you know, coming from this place of, you know, of being punitive to self, 
we if we can invite that compassion and this is where people get um what's the word they think that if they hold themselves an, an offering of compassion that that compassion is going to be exploited and they're going to run rings around their own self-compassion and then become overly indulgent and it's actually yeah. not the case the compassion is actually the, the aspect of self that someone would say hey like if a kid falls over you don't go up and then you know scold them for falling over you help them back up and when we can start yeah. to build that internal resource that says okay look maybe going for those after work drinks at the end of the day where I you know didn't sleep well the night before and decided to end up having an error of judgment I was tired I hadn't eaten and then I decided to just you know have that one drink and then I ended up blind drunk and ended up in the city somewhere like we need to realize that okay there was a lot of other variables like people say oh there was a fork in the road that fork in the road is often so many steps back it yeah. doesn't just happen right when people make that decision exactly there could yeah. have been other things and, and that's what we need yeah. to be just as a as a as a curious um you know explorer mm. of okay what what Let's just look at this with a fresh set of eyes. Let's just look at it as if we were, you know, conducting a, um, a a bit of a social experiment here. What what's happened? And when we start to realise that there was variables involved in this, then there's, you know, when we look at them for the impact that those variables have, we're more likely to be able to sit in with that space of compassion and get them to sit and internalise that same compassion that they have in the therapeutic room and actually bring that as part of their psyche. I've had many clients say, Marie, I've actually heard you they're not psychotic, but they've actually had, I've heard your voice and what you would have said. And that was the thing that stopped me from doing X, Y, or Z. All right. So, I mean, it's important to understand that, yeah, both of us come from backgrounds where we deal with substance use disorders. But this cycle of change that we've just described, going from the pre-contemplative to contemplative to preparation to action to maintenance, that cycle of change, including the, the management of relapse, it can be used as a tool to analyze change in any aspect of in, in, an individual's life. It's not just the preserve of people in AOD counseling. So right. if you are someone who does want to make a New Year's resolution, yes. don't make the resolution when you're blind drunk on New Year's Eve. Think about it. Give yourself no. an opportunity to think about what is your SMART goal, the specific, yeah. measurable, achievable, relevant, time-framed, goal that you want to achieve and then understand that cycle of change so that by the end of the year you are still in that maintenance phase that's correct so, here's another way of looking at it a new year's resolution is not just for the new year it's for life exactly marie thank you so much for your time as usual thank you for having me and have a lovely new year. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any resolutions this year, by the way, because I'm perfect already. <laughs> 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 Either that or I'm just too lazy. I'm still in the pre-contemplative stage. I'll let you be the I'll let you decide. <laughs> That's all for today's Medheads. Thank you for watching. My name's Dr. Fergal Armstrong.